You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. This week, I'm talking to Sandor Katz, whom you likely know from his books Wild Fermentation, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, The Art of Fermentation, Fermentation as Metaphor, and now Sandor Katz's Fermentation Journeys, which maps fermentation practices around the world to show how traditions that preserve abundance have been maintained. It's perhaps my favorite of his books because it tells so many stories through fermentation and introduces you to so many people around the world. Katz has become a legend for his work, but he maintains humility as a conduit of knowledge rather than a keeper. His approach is a real inspiration to me. It was wonderful to get to talk to him about how he organized this book by substrate rather than nation, that why he names the ills of neocolonialism, and a lot more. Hi, Sandor. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Well, I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side. And, um, you know, we ate all kinds of things. Um, I feel very lucky that, you know, my parents liked different kinds of foods. They liked vegetables. We ate lots of different kinds of um, uh, uh, fresh vegetables. But, you know, I mean, you know, I would say that my mom did most of the day-to-day cooking. She kind of, you know, she had her repertoire. You know, I remember she liked to make pot roast sometimes. She made great lasagna but also lots of like, you know, kind of simple things that like she would leave me a note as I got older just to like reheat something, you know, set the oven to this temperature, put this in the oven. My father also liked to cook. He was more the classic like weekend chef, but, you know, that also meant that he could be, he was very like creative in his cooking. And, you know, he's 87 years old now and he still loves to cook. And, yeah, and we were in New York City and we ate Chinese food a lot. China Latina food, the Cuban Chinese restaurants, uh, uh, we ate them a lot. My mother's parents, who I was close with growing up, uh, were immigrants from what's now Belarus. And, you know, my, my grandmother was a great cook and um, she would come over from time to time and make balinces for us. I mean, she would make dozens of them and, you know, we'd eat some fresh and then she'd wrap them up and put them in the freezer and we would um, defrost them and fry them to, to eat them. She made a uh, chopped liver. She made matzo ball soup, a filter fish, you know, all all these kind of classic Eastern European Jewish foods. We ate, you know, really beautiful versions of them at home. Right. And, you know, you've written mostly about fermentation now to kind of fast forward (laughs) in life. But I also love your book, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, which came out in 2006. And I wanted to ask, because I recently reread it, you know, how do you feel about the food movement it described in 2006, now in 2022? Well, I guess one thing I would say is that, you know, it doesn't describe a food movement. You know, it describes a lot of different, um, you know, grassroots movements. And, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, some of them have been you know, more successful over time than others have been. You you know, I I, I mean, I think very much it's not a, you know, centralized movement with a singular Mm -hmm. aim. I think people who, um, uh, you know, get involved in grassroots movements uh, organized around food, you know, have a lot of different ideas and a lot of different objectives. But I think that um, 
Um, I, I mean, certainly the local food movements have been very successful. And, you know, there's a lot in most in most parts of the U.S. at any rate, you know, there's a lot more, you know, variety of locally uh, uh, grown foods available. You know, in, in some places, I, I think that there have been, um, you know, more successful efforts to, you know, make that accessible. You know, I've visited some farmers markets where, you know, they take EBD car, EBT cards and they have some sort of a grant. So they're able to double the value of the EBT purchases. So, um, uh, you know, at least in some places, people have been making strides towards, you know, making that higher quality locally produced foods accessible to people. You know, in the seed saving movements, I mean, I think that there's, you know, sort of been amazing strides and, you know, a lot of different people doing seed saving at different scales and with different emphases. But, you know, I'm really inspired by this project called True Love Seeds. I buy a lot of seeds from them and, you know, they're working primarily with um, immigrant and refugee gardeners and with um, African-American farmers and, you know, trying to save and spread you know, seeds of different kinds of um, culturally important crops. But, you know, if we look at the, you know, if we look at the big picture of, um, you know, centralization of production and, and retailing, like that's only getting worse. You know, if we look at issues of, um, you know, wasteful packaging, that that's only gotten worse. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, it, as much as in 2006, more so than in 2006, you know, we need grassroots activism around food. To get to your latest book, Sander Katz's Fermentation Journeys, it begins with drinking palm wine in Africa and talking about how traditional techniques are so different from the sterile, you know, literally and figuratively approach in the West. And this inevitably related to how people respond to fermentation as well as alcohol. And so how in your work have you adapted the traditional, more organic approaches to talk to an audience that might be, you know, skittish about fermentation? You talk about this in the book when you go see the Chinese chef Guan who stirs in mold that forms on the top of his pickles when many people new to fermentation would, you know, throw the whole crock out. Well, I mean, honestly, this is you know, really what drew me into fermentation education. And, you know, the, the, the first time I was invited to teach a fermentation workshop, what, which was in um, 1998, you know, just because I had gotten interested in fermentation and, you know, not particularly had any fear about it. You know, it really struck me at that first workshop when one of the students picked up a jar of the vegetables that we just shredded and stuffed into the jars. And, you know, and she said, you know, how can I be sure I have good bacteria growing in here and not some dangerous bacteria that, you know, might make me sick or even kill somebody? And, you know, I started to realize how easy it is for people who've grown up with the idea that bacteria are so dangerous. It, you know, it's easy to project this generalized anxiety about bacteria onto the process of fermentation, you know, which actually, you know, is and always has been a strategy for safety in food. So, um, you know, I feel like that's part of what, you know, drew me into fermentation education was, uh, you know, the idea of demystifying this process for people. So, you know, I'm always trying to tell people that like, oh, you can just like, you know, you can just skim, skim off the top layer if it gets funky, 
you know, but I also like to let people know that they have options. You know, I, you know, th there do exist, you know, um, um, very effective technologies for, let's say, protecting the surface of your fermenting vegetables from uh, oxygen. You know, I tell them why I don't use them, because, you know, if you like to smell it and taste it as, as it develops, every time you open it up, you're letting the air and the oxygen in and kind of defeating the, the purpose of your, you know, specially engineered vessel or, or, or system. But, you know, there, there are options and, and, you know, people who, you know, are really squeamish about that, you know, they can ferment anyway and there are ways that you can avoid that. But I also try to, you know, emphasize that really it's harmless and, um, you know, just, just skim off the top layer, like don't throw the whole thing away. Right. Have you seen, have people gotten a little bit more as like fermented products have, you know, become kind of more commonplace, especially in the U.S., you know, like everyone's eating kimchi all the time everyone's drinking kombucha, have people gotten a little more easygoing about fermentation or a bit more interested in it? Well, sure, sure. You know, I would say since, uh, you yeah. know, since roughly 2011, maybe every year I've seen, you know, lists of, you know, the hot new trends in food that include fermentation. And, you know, that always makes me um, uh, <laughs> chuckle a little bit because, uh, you know, fermentation is ancient. The products of fermentation have had enduring appeal. And, you know, if you think about, um, you know, ferments like, you know, bread, cheese, beer, wine, vinegar, um, uh, you know, they were just as prominent in our great grandparents' time as, as, as they are now. You know, it's just that more people are aware of the process by which they are created. They're aware of fermentation. And I think that, that that has everything to do with the microbiome and 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 growing awareness that bacteria are not just, mm -hmm. you know, our dangerous enemies, but you know, they actually are are our symbiotic partners and we need them in order to function well. But people don't always know when to welcome them and when when to fear them. Of course, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm so struck, and this I think is related to, you know, the fact that fermentation is this, you know, ancient practice that no one can really, you know, own. But, you know, your writing and practice has such an openness that reminded me of uh, Samantha Seville's concept of humble geographies, um, which asked geographers to pursue knowledge without assumptions of mastery. And so I think that in this book, you really approach you know, a humble geography of fermentation globally without pretense, without expectation. And I, I love that that humility is, is reflected in calling yourself a fermentation revivalist rather than an expert. And so why has that manner of working been important to you? And how did you develop your approach to, you know, being a revivalist of fermentation? Well, uh, you know, I've never heard of this phrase, humble geographies before, but, um, you know, I, I feel, I feel humbled. You know, I was, you know, I was 30 years old when I like first learned how to make sauerkraut. You know, I'd been eating sauerkraut and pickles since I was a kid, but, you know, my interest in fermentation really came in the middle of my life. And, you know, there are, you know, sort of so many people mm -hmm. like, you know, living, you know, in different cultural contexts where, you know, it just was part, you know, fermentation practices were just, you know, part of the landscape the whole time. And, you know, they were watching their grandmothers ferment something and their mothers ferment something and they learned as a kid how to do it. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I do feel humbled, you know, I mean, I, I have developed this sort of, you know, wide ranging, you know, sort of broad knowledge of fermentation, but, you know, in any particular ferment, I mean, there are just so many people with more, you know, with more experience than me. And, 
that sort of forces me to be humble. Now, in terms of calling myself a fermentation revivalist, I mean, I guess that I, I guess that really came about because, you know, I have such a strong feeling that, you know, fermentation has been such an integral part of how people everywhere make effective use of whatever food resources they have available to them. But, you know, in recent times, as, you know, more and more people have moved away from direct involvement in the production of food, fermentation has, you know, largely disappeared from most people's households and you know, from easy community view. So it sort of becomes mystified by disappearing into centralized production facilities, you know, and then people sort of, you know, project all of this, I guess, like, you know, technical mystery, like, oh, oh, it must take a laboratory. It must take a microscope. It Mm -hmm. must take uh, the ability to absolutely control conditions and, you know, um, imagine that they can't do it. So, you know, what I, what I, you know, what, what I'm trying to revive is people's intimacy with this process and, you know, people, you know, feeling like it's something that, that they can, you know, bring into their culinary practice. Yeah. Well, you bring up abundance often in the text as the origin point for so many global ferments. And, you know, do you think it's possible to reclaim that concept of abundance in the West to be less about having, you know, quote unquote choices and more about using every bit of things, sharing, you know, there's a clear focus on gift economies and like friendship as a, as a means of, of knowledge building in the book, you know, that celebrates a different kind of abundance than what we're um, sold in the Well, US. yeah, I mean, I hope so. I mean, I really perceive what, you know, what, what, what I'm doing, I like fermentation for me is not the ultimate point. You know, it's a means of reclaiming our food and reclaiming our food means, you know, Mm -hmm. becoming closer to the source of its production. And, you know, I, I mean, for me, that means, you know, having a garden and trying to, you know, really primarily eat out of my, my garden. And, um, and, you know, share what I have too much of and, and, and ferment what I have too much of to use at a given uh, a moment so that I can enjoy, enjoy it down the road. So, you know, I think that, I mean, I think of it in terms of, you know, just, just reclaiming a relationship to food, that food is not, you know, sort of simply a commodity mm-hmm. that, you know, you can get according to, you know, how fat your wallet is. Food is something more than that. You know, food is, you know, our connection to the biological world that enables us to physically sustain our, our ourselves. Uh, uh, food is a relationship to, you know, cultural lineages. You know, I, I mean, sure, in that context, I mean, I would love to see people think of abundance in this sort of, you know, different way. You know, what are the food resources that are around me that are abundant? Like, okay, there are all these oak trees dropping chestnuts. Mm-hmm. You know, how can I, you know, sort of learn how to turn that into food? I mean, I just think that that's so important because that, you know, that that's what food is. And all of our elaborate systems that we've set up, turning food into a commodity turn out to be extremely vulnerable. And, you know, we're seeing sort of more and more disruptions to that. Yeah. Colonization, cultural continuity, documentation, these are cited as significant concerns of yours in your fermentation work. And they seem are so fundamental to food as a whole. And so I wanted to ask, you know, and then you've been publishing for nearly 20 years, you know, 
have you seen the the dominant food narratives change to reflect the you know the significance of how colonization cultural continuity are are necessary parts of talking about food well i I mean i'm not sure that i could say that i've seen the dominant narratives change Mm -hmm. but certainly i'm seeing a broadening of the voices that are talking about food and you know i'm seeing more people Mm -hmm. who are you know, kind of, you know, bringing up the ways in which food is related to these, you know, sort of larger historical processes that form us and form our society. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there's a lot of people, you know, whether, whether it's in the form of articles and books, whether it's in the form of, um, you know, videos that people are posting on YouTube, but I definitely think that there are much more varied voices that I'm mm-hmm. finding. And I, I'm, I don't believe that they are sort of the dominant voices at all, but they certainly are present. Sure. And, you know, your introduction mentions the ills of what you call neocolonial period, poverty, social and economic marginalization, mass incarceration. Why was it important to you to name these explicitly in, in the book? Well, I mean, you know, I'm writing about all of these cultural traditions, but I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, not every cultural tradition has been able to have as much continuity as, you know, certain other cultural traditions, yeah. you know, because we're part of these sort of larger historical processes. And like, you know, if you are in a, you know, if you are in a, a native culture where there was an active, you know, government policy to sort of destroy the culture by taking children away from their families and, and, you know, forcing them into schools to assimilate them. Well, it's a lot harder for those cultural traditions to be able to continue because there's been such a, such an active Mm -hmm. agenda of destroying them. Yeah. And I think that's related to how the ferments in the book are grouped by substrate rather than, you know, like, national approach, which kind of demonstrates differences and commonalities between how these various cultures approach fermentation. I wanted to ask if you could elaborate on your choice to group the the fermentations that way and how you how you basically organized such a breadth of information. Well, I mean, I, I certainly started the project you know, with a geographic outline and imagining that I was going to organize it mm-hmm. geographically. Um, but as it went on, you know, as, as, as the project developed, I, I guess I realized that like my strength is connecting the dots. And the fact that I've had this broad exposure has enabled me to compare and contrast, you know, how, you know, people Mm -hmm. in different cultures that are fermenting vegetables are fermenting the vegetables. And, you know, honestly, there's more similarity than there is difference, but, you know, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you know, very particular distinctions. And, you know, it it just evolved that way so that Mm -hmm. rather than being, you know, this is my trip to China and this is what I learned there. This Mm -hmm. is my trip to Colombia and this is what I learned there. It just felt like it it worked a lot and certainly illuminated the fermentation processes a lot more to weave them together in a more thematic way. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And another thing I was struck by is that you acknowledge the incompleteness of your Uh, cumulative impressions from your travels. And so I wanted to ask if you have advice for other writers, documentarians, people who are working in cultures that aren't necessarily their own on how to approach being honest, I guess, about how you are documenting 
the work and the people you've met? Well, I think you just said it. I mean, you just you just have to be honest. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, when you're you know when you're when you're going into you know a situation where you're brand new and other people have been doing this all along, they're the experts and you're just the witness. Yeah. So I mean, I just think that 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 that's the reality. And yeah, I mean, I, I mean, certainly, I see you know, writers who are just trying to always assume the stance of the expert. But I mean, I just think that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it makes me, I mean, it makes me bristle when I, you know, I've been introduced as, you know, the world's fermentation expert and that, you know, that's, that's just utterly ridiculous. You know, as I said at the beginning, you know, I mean, I, I started exploring fermentation when I was 30 years old. You know, I've been, you know, I've, I've been doing it for about half of my life. But, you know, the world is full of people who have been, you know, making idlis or dosas or, you know, in Puerto Rico making mavi or, um, you know, lots of different ferments just as, a, as an everyday thing in their lives. And, you know, all of them know more about the particular ferments they're engaged with than I know about no, any No, I think of that's them. such an important lesson. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if I have an expertise, I mean, it's, it's just that I have this sort of, you know, broad general exposure. You know, and it's always incomplete. Like, I do not believe that it would be possible for, you know, a human being to, you know, possess encyclopedic knowledge of, of fermentation practices because they're so, you know, they're so disparate. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's not a unified set of practices at all. It's these very disparate practices that, you know, really only in the 20th century did we realize that they were unified by the fact that they all involve the activity of microorganisms that we didn't know about before. For you, is cooking a political act? Well, I mean, not intrinsically, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think it can be. But, I, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, like in the context of, you know, reclaiming food, mm -hmm. that's what can make, you know, cooking or other forms of, of, of food preparation a, 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 a political act. It's the spirit that we bring to it, not the act itself. Well, thank you so, so much for, for talking today. Okay. Well, thank you for your excellent questions. And also, also thank you. Know, just thank you for your appreciation of, you know, a lot of the nuance in my work. I, I, I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy. Alicia Kennedy.